Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the self-inflicted wound the Biden administration is grappling with, as about 10 classified documents have turned up at the Penn Biden Center, his home office and garage, prompting Attorney General Garland today to announce the appointment of a special counsel from the Trump administration, Robert Herr. Joining us is Frederick Barron, who formerly served as an Associate Deputy Attorney General, Special Assistant to the Attorney General, and Director of the Executive Office for National Security in the Department of Justice. He also served on the Church Committee, and we will discuss his article at the Bulwark, Jim Jordan, Church Committee Pretender. Then we'll go to Honduras for an update on whether it is possible to deal with the source of the problem behind the flow of migrants from Central America, and speak with Jared Olson, a writer and independent journalist based in Honduras covering violence, migration, and social struggle in Central America, whose writing has appeared in The Nation, The New Humanitarian, El Faro English, Vice World News, and The Los Angeles Review of Books, among others. We will discuss the brazen killing of environmentalists protesting a mine owned by a powerful oligarch in the middle of a national park, which is polluting the headwaters of many rivers. Then finally, we'll examine the likelihood that the war in Ukraine along a 600-mile front could be long, inflicting a terrible cost on Ukraine, which increasingly needs military aid since Ukraine fires as many shells in a week as the U.S. can produce in a month. Joining us is James Golgire, professor in the School of International Relations and a former dean of international service at American University, a visiting scholar at the Center for International Security and Cooperation at Stanford University, and a visiting fellow at the Center on the United States and Europe at the Brookings Institution. He's also held a number of public policy appointments, including Director of Russian, Ukrainian, and Eurasian Affairs on the National Security Council staff, and his books include America Between the Wars from 11.9 to 9.11, Power and Purpose, the U.S. Policy Towards Russia After the Cold War, and Not Whether But When, the U.S. Decision to Enlarge NATO. We'll discuss his article at Foreign Affairs, The Long War in Ukraine, The West Needs to Plan for a Protracted Conflict with Russia. And before we begin, I'd like to thank our many sustaining listeners and donors whose continued and growing support for Background Briefing over the past year has maintained our commercial-free independence as we build our online podcast audience, broadcast on a growing number of stations nationwide, expand our production team, create a new home for our non-profit foundation at publictruthmedia.org, and make sure every program remains available to all with no paywalls. If you haven't yet and are able to make a monthly contribution, visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions, large and small, enable us to provide you with a daily briefing on important issues in the news as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now is Frederick Barron, who formerly served as Associate Deputy Attorney General, Special Assistant to the Attorney General, and Director of the Executive Office for National Security in the Department of Justice. Welcome to Background Briefing, Frederick Barron. Great to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us, Frederick. And we're learning more and more about classified documents being found first at the Penn Biden Center in Washington, D.C., and then now in Biden's garage, where he keeps his Corvette along with uh, more at his home office in Delaware. Now, all told, it's probably about 10 documents, which, of course, pales in comparison to the hundreds of highly classified documents that Donald Trump took. But nevertheless, it's become a political firestorm, and the White House press secretary was on uh, TV today getting lambasted by the press and having a difficult time answering all the questions. So politically speaking, uh, Frederick, this reminds me of what we just saw the World Cup, of what they say in soccer as an own goal. How would you describe it? Well, uh, I'd describe it as um, a fascinating and important development, uh, which unfortunately uh, muddies the waters for the uh, the ongoing investigation and potential prosecution uh, in the Trump uh, Mar-a-Lago document situation, but it does not necessarily uh, 
change anything that the Justice Department would ultimately decide to do on the Mar-a-Lago matter, uh, because I think the two things will be considered uh, independently and decided on their own merits after being thoroughly investigated. So the appointment of a special prosecutor, there's there's a little bit of history here before we get into the appointment of Robert K. Herr today. Back on November the 2nd, Biden's lawyers alerted the National Archive that they had classified documents at the Biden Penn Center in Washington, D.C., and then uh, the Biden administration waited until December the 20th after the midterms to search the president's residence where they found more sensitive material. On November the 14th, the attorney general selected Robert Lausch, the U.S. attorney from Chicago, to conduct a preliminary assessment of the materials to determine whether a counsel was needed. And then today we have the appointment of Mr. Herr. So, I mean, how much is is Garland having a special counsel sort of getting Biden off the hook? I mean, it seems to me, again, this is a political hot potato. Uh, I, I don't think it's, it's getting him off the hook in any sense. Uh, I think it's, it's sort of putting him on the same hook that anyone would be put on if there were a, a, a sitting president uh, accused of any kind of impropriety that required any sort of investigation by the Department of Justice. I, I believe in the history here, when John Lausch was brought in, uh, the way the Attorney General presented it uh, today, uh, when John Lausch was brought in, he had been uh, formerly, I believe, the U.S. Attorney for the Northern District of Illinois, and he had been a Trump um, uh, uh, appointee. And uh, the Attorney General uh, told him to begin looking at all of the facts and to do it in the usual fashion. The confidential investigations are, are uh, the par for the course at the Justice Department. Then, uh, when they uh, discovered additional documents and Lausch gave his report to the Attorney General of what he had found in Phase 1, there coincidentally was a Phase 2 that developed right at the same time where uh, Biden's people uh, did their own self-inspection, discovered additional documents, and immediately disclosed them. That made it a, a bigger story, but I think uh, the attorney general would have ended up in the same place uh, because Lausch was recommending uh, that that there be some further investigation, and and Lausch was also reporting that he had a personal uh, plan to uh, leave the department, uh, and so this was ripe for the appointment of a special uh, counsel, which is which is a second phase where. Um, there needs to be a further investigation, and, uh, and, and under the special counsel statute, it needs to be someone from outside the department. And indeed, uh, Mr. Herr, who's just been appointed, um, he was a political appointee of uh, Donald Trump, as well as uh, Mr. Lausch. He also that's, that's right. s- served he, he as has, a... He has served as U.S. attorney in Maryland during the Trump administration, uh, appointed by Trump, and, and, and there's no question that Merrick Garland very consciously uh, was, hap- was looking for and happy to have uh, somebody of high reputation, deep uh, Justice Department prosecutorial experience, who happened to be a Republican uh, appointee in order to make the point that sure. this is a nonpartisan process. And Mr. Hurt worked as a top aide to Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein. He also clerked for Chief Justice William Rehnquist, so he has good uh, conservative credentials. Right. So what's your sense then of how there's going to be parallel inquiries? You have an article at the Bulwark, uh, Jim Jordan, Church Committee Pretender, and you served on the Church Committee. And now Bill Jim Jordan, who's now the new head of the uh, Judiciary Committee in the House, is talking about doing Church Committee-type uh, investigations into what they believe is the deep state the idea that somehow there's this cabal of powerful people inside the government that are working against the will of the American people. And, of course, it's an absurd notion. If there was a deep state, there wouldn't have been a January 16th insurrection. And Jim Jordan himself has played a role in the January 6th insurrection. We know that on that very day he received at least three phone calls from Donald Trump 
uh, which he's refused to talk about uh, publicly. So tell us about your article at the Bulwark, which has just came out today. I haven't had a chance to look at it. Jim Jordan, Church Committee Pretender. Well, it springs directly from the facts that you just described. That is, uh, Kevin McCarthy had agreed, uh, apparently, uh, on demands from Matt Gates and his Freedom Caucus group uh, to allow the Judiciary Committee of the House, which is chaired by Jim Jordan, to set up a special subcommittee for the purpose of what they described as investigating the weaponization of the federal government uh, uh, in various uh, investigations, but in their statements, they made it clear, they, they being Jim Jordan and Kevin McCarthy, they made it clear that uh, what they were planning to do was, quote, investigate the investigators and uh, go after uh, any actions taken by the FBI uh, and by the Justice Department in particular uh, that were directed at uh, the, the people involved in the January 6th violent insurrection at the Capitol that was clearly intended uh, to interfere with the, the ordinary electoral process, the process of, of the Electoral College. Um, that, that's one. And then the, the, um, uh, the, the second major front is, the, is related. It, it's the steal, the election uh, uh, protests on the right and the insistence and planning to circumvent the lawful electoral college process, whether or not January 6th uh, violence had ever occurred, they had a plan afoot to substitute um, alternative electors and uh, try to keep Trump in office by, by um, uh, interfering with the ordinary process. And so um, what, what Jordan is now announcing is his intention is to um, run this committee that McCarthy has, has set up, a subcommittee, uh, and, 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 and run it to allegedly uh, protect the civil rights of, um, of American citizens that may have been intruded upon by investigating January 6th and investigating the, the election interference. And he's wrapping himself in the mantle of the church committee, named after Senator Frank Church. This was in the mid-1970s, and I was on that committee staff as an investigating counsel. But they, they're wrapping themselves in the mantle of the church committee because the church committee built a strong reputation for uh, taking a hard look at questionable, improper, and in some cases uh, illegal activities that had been conducted by various intelligence agencies uh, from the CIA to NSA to the FBI over a 20-year history during administrations of both parties, uh, in many cases probably with knowledge of presidents and in other cases perhaps not. But, uh, but there were many uh, flaming uh, uh, allegations and actual proven activities of these agencies that the Church Committee brought out. Uh, and they included such things as uh, CIA assassination plots against foreign leaders. J. Edgar Hoover's FBI conducting what they called COINTELPRO, but it was directed, which was short for counterintelligence program, but it was in fact directed at U.S. Uh, civil rights movement uh, protesters who were doing lawful things, Martin Luther King Jr. for doing his organizing, anti-war uh, activists during Vietnam. So these were um, intelligence agencies that were shown later um, to be infiltrating, disrupting, and discrediting uh, these lawful activities protected under the Constitution. The Church Committee looked at that and many other things uh, very hard, uh, had a dramatic set of hearings, produced voluminous reports, and recommended a lot of reforms and uh, internal governmental regulations and uh, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, which back at its beginning was intended to protect the rights of American citizens. Um, and, and the Church Committee did all of this in quite a bipartisan fashion. So um, Jim Jordan now is trying to say, that's what I'm, that's what I'm doing too. I, I'm invoking the, the name of the Church Committee, which had tremendous credibility as a bipartisan effort, and, uh, and I'm trying to sell the fact that, that I'm approaching things the same way 
when in fact it's an alternative universe that he's creating. It's the evil twin uh, of the church committee. It's not the church committee. The reason, in short, is that, as you said, Jim Jordan is one of many people who uh, are already on record in text messages and even by testimony and even by his own admission uh, as having had ongoing communications with uh, Trump during the critical period leading up to January 6th. And then on January 6th, uh, there are text messages showing there were contacts, whether Jim Jordan has admitted it or not. So he, he becomes a central figure himself, uh, and, and, and his activities on January 6th are of great interest in his communications and the role that he played. But he's not the only one. There are other uh, members of the House, for example, who would also be under a microscope because of their conduct in connection with January 6th. There were people on the White House staff, like Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, who would be under the investigative uh, microscope, and uh, that is of the FBI and the Justice Department, if, if the investigation is allowed to proceed to its logical conclusion. But here, and this is the final point, here um, you have Jordan saying, uh, oh, no, we're really uh, going to be investigating why the FBI or the Justice Department would dare intrude upon the uh, freedom of speech and freedom of political activity of these uh, patriots at the White House and in the Congress, like himself, when in fact um, what he's doing is uh, trying to throw a monkey wrench into the works in the middle of an ongoing confidential criminal investigation that, that includes him and these other people at the very least as witnesses, possible subjects, but at least witnesses. And, and the investigation is going to slow it down and, and start making demands for disclosure of information that the Justice Department never under any attorney general, Republican or Democrat, would be disclosing. And Jim Jordan has named this, he's named it, this new select subcommittee, as the Select Subcommittee on the Weaponization of the Federal Government. And as you pointed out, the Church Committee was a bipartisan effort. And, yeah, and, uh, and that name itself is like loading the dice. It, it, right. it makes it really clear from the beginning that they've already reached a conclusion about how the investigations, uh, the criminal investigations being conducted of obvious criminal conduct at the, at the, on Capitol right. Hill on January 6th, that, that his view is those are the problem, the investigations of that criminal conduct, in, instead of the problem being uh, the people who caused the insurrection and, and exactly. inspired the violence and tried to interfere with the election. But just in closing, Frederick Barron, it does seem like Jim Jordan, who is anything but bipartisan, will really go after this Biden classified documents as well. So, again, this is an unfortunate gift that Biden has given. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's certainly true that it's unfortunate. It's also true that uh, a any responsible investigation would be um, drawing the contrast between one set of events with Trump where Trump personally was supervising and packing up the documents, supervising the packing up, ordering the packing up, uh, taking it out, um, uh, doing it in a way that, that would not be known to many people, keeping it in a set of cardboard boxes in his personal uh, office, uh, and, and, and taking voluminous, uh, uh, highly classified uh, documents, then spending uh, a year and a half resisting uh, investigations when the government discovered that the documents were missing and was insisting upon it and lecturing him about the laws that apply, uh, he was still uh, stalling, playing games, and denying that he had the documents that he had. On the other side of the ledger, you have the questions now that need to be answered. That is, um, did, did Biden... Um, operate in that same fashion, it looked, at, from the little we know now, it looks like he didn't. It looks right. like um, they it's it like was not, his it's own like lawyers who discovered the documents and disclosed the documents, right. and they did it rapidly without being pressed in any way by the government. 
Frederick Barron, again, I thank you. And Frederick Barron formerly served as Associate Deputy Attorney General, Special Assistant to the Attorney General, and Director of the Executive Office for National Security in the Department of Justice. And he has an article at the Bulwark, Jim Jordan, Church Committee Pretender. We're going to take a brief station break and back and go to Honduras for an update on whether it is possible to deal with the source of the problem behind the flow of migrants from Central America. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is James Golgai, who's a professor in the School of International Relations and a former Dean of International Service at American University and a visiting scholar at the Center for International Security and Cooperation at Stanford University and a visiting fellow at the Center on the United States and Europe at the Brookings Institution. He's held a number of public policy appointments, including Director of Russian, Ukrainian and Eurasian Affairs, on the National Security Council staff and the Whitney Shepherdson Senior Fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. And his books include America Between the Wars from 11.9 to 9.11, Power and Purpose, U.S. Policy Towards Russia After the Cold War, and Not Whether But When, the U.S. Decision to Enlarge NATO. And he has an article on foreign affairs, The Long War in Ukraine, The West Needs to Plan for a Protracted Conflict with Russia. Welcome to Background Briefing, James Golgaya. Thank you so much for having me. So given that there's a 600-mile-long front and a kind of World War I dug-in trenches, etc., in this winter landscape, I mean, who's going to outlast who in this thing? Is that what it's really, at the end of the day, going to be about? Putin doesn't want to negotiate. He thinks he can continue to achieve his aims of essentially incorporating Ukraine back into new Russia, or whatever he wants to call it. Or do you think that the Ukrainians in the West have the staying power if it's going to be a long and protracted war as you've predicted? Well, I think I think the Ukrainians certainly do. They're fighting you know, for their own independence. Uh, I think the West will continue to support them uh, as much as possible without provoking a war between NATO and Russia. Um, the problem is... Uh, I mean, it would be great if the Ukrainians could achieve a complete military victory and eject Russian forces from all of Ukrainian territory. That would be great. And I would be thrilled to see that happen. Um, but I think that that's going to be extremely difficult. Uh, and I think that a negotiated solution, a peace settlement between the two, it's certainly not likely anytime soon. And I think it's probably unlikely more generally. And so that means we'll continue to see fighting along these different points. Hopefully the Ukrainians will liberate more of their territory. But uh, I think that each side has reason to keep fighting. And so you, we may well see uh, a long extended war between Ukraine and Russia. And the United States does need to be prepared for what that means for its Ukraine policy and its Russia policy. And at the moment, the Russians are invested in an offensive around a salt mining town of, or city, I guess, of Solidar. And the Wagner group of mercenaries led by Prigozhin keep claiming that they're the ones that are actually doing the fighting. And the military, the Russian military, dispute those claims, which indicates that there's a kind of friction between the mercenaries and the regular army. And President Putin had had to fire his latest head of the Russian military, in Ukraine after only, what, three months, and now he's put the Gerasimov, the essentially head of the military, in charge. So if Solidar doesn't have any strategic purpose or any great victory, they're not going to make much difference to the overall military situation. That would indicate, James, that Putin wants some kind of propaganda victory, and that's why he's staking so much on capturing Solidar. So... Does that mean then that he has to be concerned about his Russian population, even though they are completely immersed in the propaganda bubble that he has created? Well, he certainly has 
been able to create a propaganda bubble. And he's, as far as we can tell, he's actually garnered pretty significant support, continues to have significant support for this war. Uh, Russian attitudes towards Ukrainians um, are not ones of uh, that you would expect from people that define themselves as uh, fraternal. And uh, I think, you know, Putin still has control over the system. The thing, I think the main thing he has to be careful about is jockeying around him. Uh, he can't show any sign of weakness. Uh, he needs to keep those around him off balance. Uh, you know, he's got Prigozhin there, the head of the Wagner Group, uh, doing his thing, you know, getting folks let out of prison to throw on the front lines uh, in the meat grinder there. Uh, as you said, he's got Gerasimov now on the hook for trying to show something. And I think a lot of it is really just, uh, you know, he's flailing to a certain extent, but I think he's also trying to keep those around him off balance because what he doesn't want is for them to form uh, any kind of uh, movement against him. So given that Ukraine wants more and more weapons, and we have now a very hostile Republican House, which seems to be the tail of the this wagging the dog of the Freedom Caucus, many of whom, like Marjorie Taylor Greene and others, want to cut funds for USA to Ukraine. And McCarthy, of course, the Speaker, has obviously been weakened and is weak. So it would seem to me that in terms of Putin's choices, his best and biggest play would be the U.S. House, would it not? I mean, his military options don't look great. But if he can use active measures and persuasion and people like Tucker Carlson to convince the House that they have to cut funds, do you do you see that as a possibility? And do you agree that that might well be Putin's biggest play? Well, what worries me is that he thinks that that's possible. And so that will give him hope that he can just you know, outlast the United States interest in this war. He's made miscalculation after miscalculation since last February. Uh, and I would distinguish between U.S. military aid to Ukraine and other types of assistance, economic assistance, efforts to help Ukraine with reconstruction. I, I think there is a difference. I mean, we will find out what the Republican Congress, the Republican House of Representatives uh, wants to do with respect to Ukraine. I still think there's a chance, given the bipartisan support for military aid to Ukraine, I still think there's a chance for that military aid to continue. I would expect if the House Republicans want to cut something, they would be cutting economic assistance. And, you know, they could easily make the argument that you, that the Europeans, European Union countries should step up and, and provide that economic assistance. And I think there would be a lot of sympathetic ears in the United States that the United, that the European Union should be taking on the bulk of that economic assistance issue. So, uh, so I, I think there's, at least at this point, I feel like there's still a difference, but, you know, obviously uh, there is a part of the Republican Party in the House of Representatives that seems to be in control of the situation. And so uh, we will all be watching with great interest to see how that plays out. But James Galgai, in your article at Foreign Affairs, The Long War in Ukraine, the West needs to plan for a protracted conflict with Russia. You point out that Ukraine has fired as many shells in a week as the United States can produce in a month. So you're predicting that in the next months and years, if it comes to that, that the U.S. and its NATO allies are going to have a hard time replacing the equipment and giving Ukraine more military assistance? Well, that is, there's no question that that's a real challenge. Uh, I mean, they are going through the what we're providing at a very rapid rate. The munitions stocks are being depleted. And I think there's tremendous concern on Capitol Hill, um, you know, among those representatives and senators that want to see the United States play a strong international role. There's concern about what this means for the U.S. presence more globally. Uh, and that's why the Congress did push for, or it's one of the reasons why the Congress pushed for a larger de defense budget than the Biden administration asked for. Now, one of the other questions with respect to the Freedom Caucus is, are they going to 
you know, enact their uh, plans that they've described to cut spending across the board? And will that lead to cuts in military spending uh, at a time when the United States is depleting its stocks because of the assistance to Ukraine and, and will be concerned that it has sufficient military, for example, were to happen in the Indo-Pacific with China and Taiwan. So that, you know, definitely a very challenging situation. And I think we will see the West, uh, you know, try to address this situation, but it does require funding. So how could Ukraine end up then not being a part of NATO, which would be, again, a sort of red line for Russia and Putin, presuming he's still around? I mean, for all intents and purposes, they're being integrated into NATO and in, into uh, Europe, which is what they want, which is what happened uh, back at the Maidan in 2014. So how are you going to finesse that, the idea that you've essentially got a country that's integrated in, militarily into NATO and wants to be part of Europe and do that in such a way as not to provoke Russia further or particularly in terms of some kind of disengagement, that would be a deal breaker. Well, I, I I don't think Ukraine is going to be able to join NATO. I think there will be opposition to that within NATO countries. I think it would be a challenge also in terms of ratification in the United States Senate. I do think the United States and its NATO partners could provide, I hope they will provide a security commitment to Ukraine to provide it with the weapons it needs to defend itself against Russian aggression today and in the future. And, you know, the the sort of model for this um, is the way the United States has approached Israel. Now, you know, there's been decades that the United States has provided Israel with assistance. The United States doesn't give Israel a security guarantee, uh, just like Ukraine, because it's not a member of NATO. It doesn't have a security guarantee. The United States isn't obligated to come to its defense. Uh, and that's why we don't see American troops in Ukraine fighting against Russians, and we're not going to. And uh, but I think the United States, uh, this administration has made pretty clear that they want to provide the kind of assistance Ukraine needs so that whatever territory Ukraine controls, it can defend that territory against Russian aggression today and in the future. That 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 is a big commitment, uh, but it does fall short of the kind of security guarantee we provide through NATO. And in your article, uh, James, that you argue that the West needs a policy towards Kyiv and towards Moscow. And you suggest that one important step would begin talks on extending the new START treaty. So how do you think that could, could take place? What kind of initiatives could the U.S. offer Russia in terms of engagement, given how you know estranged Putin and uh, Biden are? Well, there's no question it's, ta- it's difficult. Uh, But there's also the case that the United States and Russia do have some common interests, uh, and that includes wanting to prevent another nuclear arms race. Uh, And we have an arms control agreement that expires in 2026. It's going to be very difficult to replace it. It means that you'd have to have negotiations take place. It also means that if you reached an agreement, you know, like the one that we have in place now, you'd need the Senate to ratify it. I, I mean, that's a challenge as well. Uh, you'd need the Russian you know, parliament to ratify it. Presumably, um, if this is something Putin wants, he would get it. And we just know what's possible as long as Putin remains in power. Uh, but I think we have to try to test that where we can. Uh, it's clear that there have been communications. There have been communications between the United States and Russia. That's how Brittany Griner was released. She was released through a deal um, where, uh, you know, the, the United States and Russia reached. Uh, Ukraine and Russia have had communications. They've engaged in prisoner swaps. Uh, there's the grain deal that the United Nations and Turkey um, produced. So, so there have been communications between Ukraine and Russia, between the United States and Russia. Um, so, so we know that communications are possible, whether anything more is possible or not. We just don't know. Uh, but we we do have these interests that the United States will want to try to pursue. Might be easier if there was somebody else in power, but that's not our call. Vladimir Putin is the president 
you know, it's not our choice. We don't get to pick the president of Russia. So we don't know how long he's going to stay in power. And we need to think about how we can pursue the interest, the common interest that we do have, even while we are trying to contain Russian aggression. And we did this during the Cold War. We contained, we, we sought to contain Russian aggression, and we also pursued diplomacy, including arms control agreements with the Soviet Union. So it has been done. Can it be done now? We don't know, uh, but we have an interest in it. So just in the last couple of minutes, Putin dressed down one of his ministers live on TV and humiliating him, just as he had done earlier with his intelligence chief. And, and he's concerned about, you know, the production of aircraft and tanks and stuff. So... It's clearly that the Russian military-industrial complex is thoroughly corrupt, as is the military. But now Putin is trying to get them to really dig deep and, and start producing a lot of weaponry to replace all that they've lost in Ukraine. Meanwhile, the one thing that he has, I guess, is his nuclear arsenal, right? Which is, which is, I guess, why he keeps making these nuclear threats. So how do you see him succeeding there? Is it? I mean, the last thing he seems to be able to understand is that all he offers is gangster government. He runs a mafia state. And the reason he's, one of the main reasons he's losing so badly in Ukraine is that his his regime is so corrupt. He doesn't seem to be able to get, grasp that. So can he pull this one off by somehow rebooting his corrupt system? I don't know that he really wants to reboot the corrupt system. I mean, as long as he stays in power, I don't think he really cares that much. He doesn't clearly doesn't care about other people. He doesn't care about other people's lives. But, uh, you know, what he most cares about is himself uh, and himself staying in power. So he's going to do what it takes for that. And his options in terms of rebuilding the Russian military are pretty limited. I mean, it has taken a big hit. You know, he's relying now, for example, on Iran for these uh, drones. Uh, The Chinese are not providing uh, military assistance uh, which is a good thing. But, I mean, there's so many questions about the decisions that he's made since last February. There's been one after another bad decision. Is it because he's just so obsessed with this idea that Ukraine belongs to Russia, belongs to him? Uh, is it because he doesn't get good information? Is it because you know people aren't willing to tell him what's really going on? I mean, you know, we just don't know. It's so opaque. But He's going to be most concerned that there be no group around him forming against him. So he will do whatever it takes to try to keep that from happening. And if there is a coup, unfortunately, the chances of somebody emerging that's worse than Putin are higher than, much higher, I think, than the chances of somebody emerging who would be better than Putin. Well, I mean, look at what Putin's done. It's really, I mean, can we imagine someone who's worse, uh, mm-hmm. both for the Russian people and for Ukraine and for relations with the West? Putin's, I mean, it's as bad as it gets, I guess, if we have a good imagination or a bad imagination, we could, mm-hmm. you know, we could imagine, uh, we could imagine something worse. I don't know what worse would look like. Uh, he's bad. Uh, right. And so I think, you know, they're, I think we could have hoped that he would be replaced uh, by people at least who would want to take a different approach and want to different take a different approach toward Ukraine. I would hope so, but of course we don't know. And again, it's not really our business. We don't pick the president of Russia, and we're not, uh, you know, we're not in, involved in that. We shouldn't be involved in that. Uh, that's for the Russian people to determine. Well, James Golgai, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thanks for having me. And again, I've been speaking with James Golgai, who's a professor in the School of International Relations and the former Dean of International Service at American University and a visiting scholar at the Center for International Security and Cooperation at Stanford University and a visiting fellow at the Center on the United States and Europe at the Brookings Institution. He's held a number of public policy appointments, including Director of Russian, Ukrainian and Eurasian Affairs on the National Security Council staff and is the the Whitney Shepardson Senior Fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. And his books include America Between the Wars from 11.9 to 9.11, Power and Purpose, U.S. Policy Towards Russia After the Cold War, and Not Whether But When, the U.S. Decision to Enlarge NATO. And he has an article at Foreign Affairs, The Long War in Ukraine, The West Needs to Plan for a Protracted Conflict with Russia. 
We're going to take a brief station break. We're back examining the likelihood that the war in Ukraine along a 600-mile front could be long, inflicting terrible cost on Ukraine, which increasingly needs military aid since Ukraine fires as many shells in a week as the U.S. can produce in a month. En mi país, de Guamil y sol ardiente, se ve la historia en los rostros de la gente. Hermosa tierra, vuelo de gaviota herida, tenés la luz que va repartiendo vida. Sos la semilla y sos la fuerza en el arado. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now from Honduras is Jared Olson, a writer and independent journalist based in Honduras, covering violence, migration, and social struggle in Central America, whose writing has appeared in The Nation, The New Humanitarian, El Faro English, Vice World News, and The Los Angeles Review of Books, among others. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jared Olson. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And although there is a new government in Honduras and the criminal drug dealing government was uh, voted out and the former president was extradited to the United States to join his brother in jail, it seems extraordinary, though, that now you've had the brazen murder of uh, two environmental defenders that were shot dead in broad daylight Ali Dominguez and Hierro Bonilla, co-founders of the Grassroots Resistance Group, protesting an iron ore mine. So you're there, and I take it that it's difficult uh, in many ways to discuss who might well be responsible for this because of the litigious nature of the lawyers for the iron ore mine. But let's start with the mine itself. It's being referred to in various press stories here in The Guardian, The Nation, Al Jazeera, etc., common dreams, as an illegal mine. Is it an, an illegal iron ore mine? Yeah, so, I mean, we should look at the origins of the story and the man, at least publicly known, behind this mine, right? So this mine was created in 2013 in the middle of a national park, and this kind of started this community's resistance to this mining project, right? In December 27, 2013, at 3 in the morning, the Honduran Congress, led by soon-to-be President Juan Orlando Hernandez, who is now in jail for alleged drug trafficking, he was the president of Congress then, they convened an emergency session of Congress at 3 in the morning with no opposition to vote against them to resize Carlos Escaleras National Park, a highly biodiverse national park on the north coast of Honduras, so that essentially there would be like a donut hole carved out in the middle of it where open pit mining would be allowed. Soon thereafter, this mining concession was given in the middle of a national park, which is also the source of water for 30 rivers going throughout the entire region, dozens of communities. And that's kind of where the uh, conflict starts. And the guy behind the company, whose name is Lanier Perez, is known as one of the closest allies of Juan Orlando Hernandez. In terms of all the business figures in Honduras, he was the most close ally of Juan Orlando. And additionally, aside from this mine, which was supported by that narco government previously, he received a concession to build a new airport that was pushed by the former president, now in jail. So you've already got origins of corruption behind this project that have stoked community opposition to it. And what's the situation then with the new president, Castro? Is she unable or unwilling to go against Perez? Is he, is he that powerful? I think, you know, it's a combination of both, right? I don't want to say, you know, as a journalist, I don't want to take any opinion or say that she's pure evil, right? But, you know, first of all, her discourse when she came to power was that she was going to challenge corrupt business interests like Lanier Perez, the rich agro-business mining interests who are not only connected to organized crime, but who have historically been connected to paying armed groups to murder their opposition, right? But just a few days ago, uh, Honduran investigative outlet Contra Corrientes published something that showed that Xiomara's secretary of governance uh, runs a law firm that also serviced Lanier Perez, right? So her kind of opposition to him is a little bit more in terms of discourse, right? Um, at the same time, you have to remember that, you know, in Honduras, it's not just reducible to the executive power. You have the armed forces, the military, which ever since the 1980s have been implicated in drug trafficking and are extremely powerful. The armed forces, for example, ousted Xiomara's wife or husband 
Mel Celaya in a military coup in 2009, which unleashed a wave of violence for years that still continues, much of it at the hands of the military. So you've got all these institutions, including an oligarchy that's very powerful, of which Lanier Perez is a part, which even if Xiomara was genuine in trying to challenge them, it would be extremely difficult for her to do so. So, Jared Olson, I mean, are you suggesting that we have sort of prematurely celebrated democracy in Honduras? Because it's obviously been a great concern of the Biden administration. They sent their vice president down there initially to deal with the idea that you stop the immigration from Central America into the United States at its roots by making life more livable in these countries of Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras. So how would you rate the situation in terms of those aspirations on the part of Vice President Harris and Joe Biden? Well, I think that, you know, we have to remember in terms of there's a lot of continuity in U.S. policy in some aspects towards Honduras and Central America, just in the Biden administration. So this is also including the former corrupt president, Juan Orlando Hernandez, right? They, their plan to, quote unquote, fight root causes of migration is essentially the same sort of policy which has been directed towards Central America for 25 years, right? It's supporting, quote unquote, foreign investment, which often means sweatshops where mothers get paid a pittance and then their sons left on the street join street gangs. It's supporting corrupt military and police forces, giving them more money and guns, even though they're part of the same drug networks that they're supposed to be fighting, right? So the quote-unquote fighting root causes is in fact little different from, for example, the Alliance for Prosperity, a program which Biden as vice president in 2016 proposed. Um, the one thing that has changed is that um, in the era, the late years of Juan Orlando Hernandez, the United States, which as many listeners may know, has historically maintained connections to corrupt, shady regimes around the world, they were essentially forced to shut up their relationship with, for example, the Honduran military. It's not a very good PR look to be training the military forces of a man who's implicated in drug trafficking. That has changed since then. They're openly training the Honduran military. They're openly providing security to the Honduran police. Yet at the same time, there hasn't been up to this point any significant evidence to suggest that those institutions, as institutions, have ceased to be involved in corrupt activities and murder. And the local police, in the case of the brazen murder of the two environmentalists, I take it they're a part of the problem. I mean, they're not doing their job, to say the least, right? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, you may have seen, and listeners would be interested to know, that in the case of these two environmentalists, I went to their funeral the other day. I've been speaking to their family members, most of whom do not want to go on the record because of the fear that they're facing and continued threats. Um the police are saying that these two men who were murdered execution style, shot and then shot in the head on the ground, um, were killed in a robbery, despite the fact, according to family and friends, that they had been receiving threats explicitly related to their defense of the environment for weeks, despite the fact that they reported those threats to the police and nothing happened, right? So the police are now trying to say that this was a crime of passion, that it was a robbery, which is rather improbable. You know, you have a lot of people involved in criminal activities and any death is bad, right? But, you know, when gang members die in Honduras, the only people who show up at the funeral are, you know, two or three people, the mother and a friend or two, right? There were probably seven to eight hundred people at the funeral of these men who were beloved in their community, right? The narrative that the police are peddling, I would argue, while we still need to find out who the perpetrators were, is false. Um, and the police have historically been involved in, you know, according to U.S. court trials reporting I have done and the investigation of others, have been tied up in extra state armed groups, paramilitary groups in this part of the country that have been documented carrying out killings. So most people aren't buying the narrative of the police because many people see the police as in with the criminals. Right, but the police say it's an, it was a robbery, yet the moped that they were on was not stolen, and the money and watches and personal possessions of the two slain environmentalists were also not stolen. Yeah, it's a ridiculous narrative. And this is something that often happens in Honduras, where there's a process that I think isn't as well known outside of Mexico and Central America of criminalization, when opponents of these corrupt business interests, displacing people from their lands, poisoning the landscapes are murdered, usually preceding their deaths, you see a campaign by shady interests on social media to demonize them. You see bots starting to talk about people being involved in criminality, despite any evidence. Um, because when they're killed, 
people can say, oh, well, people have been discussing how they were involved in criminal networks. They were probably, there's a quote, andaban en algo mal. They were going in something bad, you know, to assume that it was either a crime of passion or because they were criminals getting killed by other criminals, right? And this is unfortunately a very common strategy. This is not unique to them. The famous, the world famous environmental and indigenous advocate, Berta Cáceres, when she was murdered by a military death squad, a military linked death squad, at first, the government tried to say that she was murdered because of a love affair that she was involved in. So this is also part of why people can't really buy that narrative. Yeah, but if all those people, uh, Jared, showed up at the funeral, a lot of people aren't buying it, right? And I'm sure a lot of people don't buy the idea that uh, Berta Caceres was murdered because of some love triangle or whatever. I mean, it's pretty clear that a lot of people in, in the world <laughs> don't believe these lies from the government and from the death squads. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, so these two men, you know, have lived in the community their entire lives. They both worked. They both had children. They both had girlfriends, right? Um, and I remember, I'll never forget this kind of poetic scene at this funeral, you know, everyone crying, sad, kind of the love for these men pulled from the community, right? And there were so many people who were invested in their lives that as the funeral procession proceeded through this remote village, People had on Zoom calls their immigrant families in the United States watching the procession from their phones because, you know, people were so invested in these two men. You know, this is a small community and these are small communities being displaced, um, you know, two, three thousand people. Right. It's like a large high school. Everyone knows each other. And murders like this, you know, really have an effect. Well, the U.N. Special Rapporteur on the human rights situation in Honduras, uh, Mary Lawler, has called for an investigation into the killing of the two Honduran environmentalists. What do you expect to happen there? To be frank, nothing. Um, so already the fiscal, the kind of prosecutor investigator associated with the public ministry, the Ministerio Publico, um, who's been charged with, quote unquote, investigating this case, um, is the same woman who was complicit in the criminalization and arbitrary imprisonment for three years of eight of the environmentalists, the water defenders, right? Um, this same woman has now been mysteriously charged with investigating the crime of the blatant murder of these two men. And we also have to remember, you know, there are a staggering amount of political killings in Honduras, but there's an even larger amount of just kind of murders of poor people tied up with criminality and general violence, right? And of all those murders in Honduras, there's been multiple studies showing that about 98% of them never even have an investigation. And of the ones that do have an investigation, even fewer end up in a concrete court trial and the imprisonment of the perpetrator. Well, in the case, though, of the environmentalist Berta Caceres, uh, who was murdered in March of 2016, six hired assassins and two executives of the firm promoting this uh, dam, this hydroelectric dam in western Honduras that she and the other environmentalists were protesting, they were later convicted, were they not? They were convicted, and that was remarkable because, I think, and others would say as well, because she had an international audience. She won the most prestigious environmental prize in the world, the Goldman Prize, right? And she was not just an environmentalist. She was an indigenous a feminist advocate. She went on speaking tours in the U.S., in Argentina, in Mexico, right? She had an international profile, and the assassins who killed her you know, many would say calculated incorrectly to assume that they could kill her and get away with it, right? But oftentimes when people talk about the murder of environmentalists in Honduras, they can end up focusing on people like Casares. Um, and I know Casares' family members, and they've discussed this as well. She would hate the focus that only comes on the famous people who are killed, right? Of which she was one of the few, because there have been hundreds and hundreds of such killings over the past, let's say, 13 years since the military coup, although there were some before. And most of those remain in anonymity because it's not someone who goes on speaking tours and wins international prizes. They're just local members of communities who have a leadership role, who organize people to go submit complaints and denounce, you know, kind of intimidation against their community. Right. And the sad fact is that, you know, those things don't get as much attention. Editors at publications in the United States will say, well, were they famous? Did they have an international audience? And you can't, you know, capture the staggering scale of this kind of systematic, long-running campaign of violence and murder against these people, you know? Right, but Jared, if the UN rapporteur is involved and others surely could join in, and NGOs and maybe the Biden administration, there's surely got to be some way to revive the kind of pressure 
that brought about a successful prosecution of the murders of Alberta Caceres. In this case, I mean, you're saying it's, it's dead on arrival, that the system now is so corrupt that there's no way that there's going to be justice in this case. So I'm asking you whether or not there's a way to bring justice through international pressure. Yeah, and definitely. As a journalist working on Honduras, I'm rather cynical, you know, which I think comes with being exposed to a lot of this. But you're right. And many people are hoping that there is a change and that there could be an investigation in this. But I think there's two pieces of context or two things that might be worth, you know, in addressing this question. Even in the case of Berta Cáceres, everyone, including the family of Berta, uh, who I've talked with repeatedly, they say that the complicity actually went higher than the CEO of that company. The company was being financed by a very wealthy family, which I would encourage listeners to go uh, look up. The first name, the last name is the Atalas. I've gotten in trouble with them, so I'll refrain from saying the full name, right? One of the wealthiest families in the country. And there is a substantial amount of evidence. Readers can go look up an investigation I published with The Intercept last summer about this to suggest that there was higher complicity in her murder. But the state was willing, and including the interest behind her killing, appeared to have been willing to throw under the bus uh, the assassins and even the CEO of a company who was kind of new money. He was a middle class guy who joined the military and criminal networks before killing her. The other thing to remember about, you know, justice here in this part of the country, I'm in the Aguan Valley, right? Cocaine comes from Venezuela and Colombia to Mexico via Honduras. Some statistics have said up to 80% of it comes through this part of the country. And, you know, in the words of one friend of mine, a human rights worker, it's sort of like, when drug trafficking comes through on a large scale, you have to buy off most of the members of the legal system or they get killed, which is why you see so many news about, you know, honest cops getting murdered here, right? Because otherwise, cocaine wouldn't move through. And once you have cocaine of such a large scale, having bought off much of the legal system, much of the police force, right? Um, it's unlikely that those people would simultaneously be willing to investigate a small crime when you already have these drug networks that are responsible for hundreds, some could say thousands of murders connected to all the members of these networks, right? When those are fully imbricated in the state security forces and the Ministerio Público investigators here, it's an uphill battle. Most people in Guapinol uh, do not believe that there may be immediate justice. What there may be is there may be a rise in awareness about these killings. And there seems to have been a greater amount of awareness about these killings um, since they were murdered last Saturday. So we'll see where that goes. Um, but the stakes are pretty high and stacked against them. So just in closing then, Jared Olson, let's go back to President Biden and Vice President Harris and the idea of making life more livable for people in Honduras, El Salvador and Guatemala so that they don't take the dangerous trek through Mexico to the U.S. border where they're turned away. And it's a massive humanitarian problem. Now it's added by the fact that there's an exodus from Cuba, Venezuela, and Nicaragua as well, along with Haiti, where street gangs have taken over the entire country. So are you suggesting in in the broader sense here, Jared, that this is a hopeless situation? I mean, I don't want to end on that note, but that's the feeling I'm getting from what you're telling us. I don't want, you know, there's always hope, right? And obviously, as a journalist, it's our job to be cynical and hard, right? You know, I don't want to say there's no hope because people are still here. People are still fighting, right? But to specifically your question about the Biden administration, you know, I would love it if there is a U.S. administration and many others would that kind of breaks from this decades old tradition of tolerating corruption and violence so long as foreign investment is promoted. As much as the Biden administration talks about fighting root causes, there is no evidence that they have deviated from the general contours of that policy. And talking to people here, not just environmental defenders under fire for defending their land, but also people living you know, in slums under the grip of gangs and corrupt military and police forces, working for pennies at sweatshops or just working on the streets, there really isn't a change. So I am still waiting to see some kind of evidence that the Biden administration really is pushing to you know, fight root causes, because I don't think there is at this point. Well, Jared Olson, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you so much for having me on. And again, I've been speaking with Jared Olson, who's a writer and independent journalist based in Honduras, where he covers violence, migration, and social struggle in Central America, whose writing has appeared in The Nation, The New Humanitarian, El Faro English, Vice World News, and the Los Angeles Review of Books, among others. 
This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again on Sunday with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine Who will ever know how much she loved them so That dark night alone in America One more life.